Welcome to the New Books Network. The events of January the 6th, 2021, are contested in the United States. For some supporters of Donald Trump, it was and remains a case of a legitimate, if somewhat unruly, protest against a rigged election. For opponents of Mr. Trump, it was an attempt to overthrow the democratic order to bully Congress through physical intimidation into refusing to validate the correct result. It is such a fundamental disagreement, it does raise the question, is democracy in the US threatened? And to discuss that, I'm joined by the multi-award winning Timothy Snyder. He's Professor of History at Yale and the author of books on European history, but also in 2017, he published on Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, which had a focus on the US. So he's in a very good position to see what's happening in Europe, in the US, and how they relate to each other. And let us start with Europe, if we can. I don't know where you think comes first, but here in Europe, there are trends towards extremism. What have you seen in Europe that makes you think things are changing? When I look at, for example, Russian attempts to intervene in the American election in 2016, I think, well, that's already happened. It's happened in Georgia. It's happened in Estonia. It's happened in Ukraine. Now, that may not be what you meant, right? I mean, by Europe, people generally don't mean Russia and and Ukraine. Yes, no, I did mean those uh, East European countries. And actually, there's something else you've done, which you've, you know, there are these things that are happening in East Europe now that seem to be trends towards authoritarianism. But then also, you've made comparisons between what's happening in America now and what happened in Nazi Germany and what happened in Soviet Russia. So again, you are seeing things happening in Europe first and wondering if what you're seeing in the United States is, is you know, an echo of that in some way. When I wrote, so so there are two versions of Antony now. There's the version which I wrote in a couple of weeks in late 2016 and which came out as a political pamphlet and which has had some influence in the U.S. and then was translated into about 40 languages and, and has had some influence elsewhere. And then four years on, I updated some of the language and the, the wonderful artist Nora Krug illustrated it. And we now have we now have a different we have a different version. In in both cases, though, I it's not so much that I'm trying to make um, the, the, the I'm trying to make the kind of direct connection you're talking about. My, my, my device, because I thought I was writing for Americans, was that I was going to take events that we thought were familiar, like early communism, late communism, national socialism, fascism, things that Americans were supposed to understand. And I was going to take the wisdom of people who lived through those events, like you know Victor Klemperer for the Nazi case or Václav Havel for late communism, and I was going to borrow that. Um, and and then by taking Americans away from where they thought they were, um, help them to see themselves again. Because in, in 2016, there was just a lot of you know, nonsense and chaos and you know, ideas of American exceptionalism and beliefs that institutions would rescue us and so on and so forth, combined with you know, the normal American exceptionalism that, that what's happening now has never happened to anyone else before. So what on earth can we do? It's more that I think that there's only one history and we learn history to, to be able to recognize patterns. And I thought that late 2016 was a good time for that exercise. And and, and it, it's continued since 2016, right? I mean, 2021, again, raises those big questions. 
There, I mean, as my, yeah, I mean, as my, as my Americanist colleagues, so remind me, um, and I still, I'm learning from them and I've been learning from them these last few years, especially as I try to catch up on U.S. history because, you know, I'm an American and I'm a historian, but I'm not an American historian. Um, the things that have happened in the last five years do have deeper roots in U.S. history. You know, so I wrote on tyranny the way I did because I was writing what I knew. I was starting from things that were familiar. Um, I thought that it was a moment where I had to use what I understood to try to get people to act, you know, since democracy is not about observation, democracy is about action. But that said, 2021 and 2016, although we can locate them in global trends, they also have American origins. So Mr. Trump's idea that he won when he lost, you know, that you can, you can make a, you can make a comparison, which I'm happy to do to say the beer hall putsch, like it's a failed coup. Um, it's clearly an attempted coup. It's a failure. It's going to be surrounded by a victim mythology, as it now is, right? As you said at the top of your show. Uh, but at the same time, there's an American history here, and the American history is that not everybody thinks that Black people's votes count because you know because of slavery and because of Reconstruction and because of the the deep voter suppression that that followed Reconstruction. So. Um, when Mr. Trump says he won the election, you know, he's saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if you only count the white votes, I won. When he calls into question the votes in cities like Detroit or Philadelphia, he's saying, basically, those black people can't be trusted to count their votes or their votes just don't count. And so there's, there, he is, he's tapping into something in U.S. history that, that was already there. Um, so, so 2016 and 2021, I agree with you completely. They call into question not just the future, but the present of American democracy. But in order to understand that, we have to, you know, we also have to take seriously some continuities. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, are there other continuities you see in the U.S. experience? So just you know, forgetting Europe uh, for a bit, ju- ju- just U.S. history that Trump has played on in his, you know, in, in, in that first term in 2016, in 2021. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a larger story here of, the end of, of the end of the American frontier. And then just to like violate, you know, your rule for a second, um, that's a global story. I mean, for me, the really interesting question about democracy and about politics in general, at least in our part of the Northern hemisphere is what do you do after empire? And, and you know, you, it, the U.S. is still in, in, in some ways an empire, but we're no longer a frontier settlement empire. And so what do you do after that? And we, you know, we used to have an answer, and that answer was called the American Dream, social mobility, um, which which had to do with building highways and educating vet, army veterans, and and uh, then creating a welfare state. That's you know we were doing that for a while, not so differently, not so terribly differently from the UK, but somewhere around, not so terribly differently from Europe for that matter, but somewhere around the Reagan administration, or specifically in, during the Reagan administration, we took a turn. And and we re- and, and and a lot of Americans return to like the imagery of the frontier, but we no longer have the frontier, right? I mean, the frontier is one source of social mobility. It's one way of keeping people moving. It's one way of promising future generations better lives than past generations. But that frontier only works when you actually have a frontier. So now a lot of so, so the way Trump works this is that we we have this imperial talk, right? It's about how. Some of us are better than others, and and some of us have more rights than others, and how you know the blacks and the immigrants are getting above themselves. We have the imperial rhetoric, but we don't have the empire, right? You don't we don't have the actual imperial payoff. And 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 meanwhile, 
what Trump is legitimating, continuing, is this Reagan turn where you give up on social mobility um, and then you run politics not by making everybody better off, but you run politics by making, by basically, dis- it's funny, but like by basically disappointing the expectations of some of your people and by, but, but then reassuring them that they're nevertheless better than others of your people, right? And so everything then becomes kind of, you get this kind of dank relativism, which now dominates American politics, where, you know, Republicans deny that the state can improve things, although it could. And insofar as they have a reference point, it's that we're, we're better than these other people who don't work as hard as we do or whatever, whatever it might be. And that's so that's a continuity that's working itself out. And their continuity, of course, is our Constitution, right? Our flawed written Constitution, which was not, you know, not set up, obviously, in the 18th century to be completely democratic and which has been repaired and tinkered with along the way. But which is now interpreted by our Supreme Court, by a majority of our Supreme Court, let's say six out of nine, um, as being about as being primarily about legalism and not primarily about rights. You know, which is a reading. It's not one that I approve of or I think is correct. But their reading is that voting is most the, the main problem with voting is respecting whatever tangle of administrative difficulties the state governments come up with. That's what they think the Constitution says. They don't think the Constitution has, a, has, for example, a right to vote for president or even really a right to vote for Americans. So that's an action that's taken now. That's an interpretation. One can disagree with it. I do. But it's also incontestably an American inheritance. You know, it ha- it, it's, it's a problem that you have when your Constitution was written in the 18th century. How unusual in the American context, I mean, I realize you're, you know, you're an American historian who's not an American historian, but I mean, I'm sure you <laughs> would have come across parallels if there were any how how original is was donald trump in exploiting these aspects of american history and culture that's a good question i mean i think i kind of i like to start by giving credit where credit is due and i think he was he was original in a couple ways he was original in that he was willing to live with social media right so like he is He's like a he's a child of the '60s in kind of the bad sense, like the the like in the kind of in the you know all all of all of the challenge to values with like no embrace of new values, um, you know all of the rebellion, but there's no content in the rebellion. Like it's all about it's all about me, you know. So Donald Trump is like he's a kind of hideously exaggerated version of like what the 1970s were supposed to be like. Like you go through this phase and then suddenly it's all about you. I would say he's original in understanding how social media allows things to be all about you. How if you can get a dominating position in social media, you can make the world turn around you, right? I mean, in, um, in AJP Taylor's little book about the Habsburgs, he has a nice sentence about how for half a millennium, European history um, turned around the Habsburgs rather than the other way around. I mean, social media allows a kind of the creation of that kind of perception for somebody like Trump, that like it's all about him. And whether you're on the right or the left, you hated him or loved him, he was very good at making it all about him. And that's one of the reasons why he crushed his Republican opponents in 2016, is that he was willing to do that. Another way that he was new was that he was willing to basically um, accept or, 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 or you know, just outright say that the Republican Party platform was hypocrisy, that you know, it wasn't, I mean, what the Republican Party platform was was supposed to be all about is um, we believe in the rule of law, we believe in stability, you know, um, 
it just so happens that you can't have the rule of law and stability and take care of everyone. And what Trump said is, no, that's nonsense. We're not really about the rule of law. We're not really about stability. Let's just kind of admit that we're about, um, you know, being extremely corrupt <laughs> and oligarchical. And that's the move he made, right? Like, and that's why my Republican friends and colleagues of an older generation were so furious with him in 2016 because he was breaking what they understood, you know, sincerely, half sincerely, who knows, but what they understood to be the way their party worked. And he said, that's all nonsense. It's every man for himself. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to show you that it's every man for himself by taking the nomination and taking the presidency and then taking as much as I can get in, in general. And that worked, you know? And so in that sense, he's an, he's, he's an, he's an innovator. I mean, if you're looking to, but if you're looking to like what he draws from, I think, you know, I think we're now in an era where it's the, it's very often the entertainers who are the politicians, right? So he's, he's a lot like, he is actually a lot like Putin in the sense that he's totally nihilistic um, and he's willing to make the language, you know, to push the language well beyond where it should really go and embrace total fiction, you know, with, with a straight face. I think we're now kind of in the era of the entertainers, like the, the previous era, like the Clinton Blair era, like that was the era of the fake economists. I think now we're in the era of the real entertainers and, and Trump is one of those. You draw the comparison with Putin, but uh, is there also a comparison with an older you know, European tradition of fascism? Now, that, that word is thrown about so much, you, know, it, you have to be very careful about using it. Uh, I've seen the phrase pre-fascism. What, what's your take on that? So I think, I think fascism has to be part of the conversation. Like, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of taboos. Um, in, I mean, I'm not. Also, I'm also not a big fan of breaking them for their own sake either. You know, I, I, I think that that like ob- there's like observing a taboo just to observe it, like to preserve some kind of sacrosanct space, makes you feel good about yourself, but it doesn't really allow conversation. And breaking a taboo just to break it, like just to draw attention to yourself, also doesn't really serve any any much purpose. You know, but but I, I, what I do think is that like it's all one history. And we can't really understand the 20s and 30s without fascism. And it's kind of ridiculous to imagine that there was some kind of Stunde Null and fascism just disappeared in January 1946 or whenever you might think it disappeared. I think fascism is a continuous presence. I mean, if, I mean to, to make a sort of obvious point, fascism didn't discredit itself because it was fascism. Fascism discredited itself because fascists lost the Second World War. Um, that the ideas were, you know, it was democracy, which was largely discredited before the Second World War started. It got a second wind because of because of um, the, the outcome of the Second World War. And then, in my view, because of the welfare state. But um, so so I think it definitely has to be part of the conversation. And I think if we don't if we don't notice how it worked, then we're also not going to notice how Trump works. Right. So Trump. I don't think is a fascist because he doesn't have a total worldview. Like his nihilism is entirely personal, but, but nevertheless, he is a big liar. Um, he, he, he openly embraced Hitler's public relations advice, which is to tell a lie, which is so big that your supporters won't believe that you deceive them on such a scale. Look, I think I wouldn't say that Trump is a fascist because Trump doesn't have collective nihilism. I mean, he only has individual nihilism. Like if a fascist usually thinks something like we're a collectivity, we should be struggling with other collectivities. Trump is not a big believer in struggle. 
I mean, Trump is a big believer in having his day over in time to have a hamburger and watch TV. He's not a big believer in collectivities. He's a big believer in himself and his own comfort, right? That's what really matters to him. But nevertheless, there, you know, if we don't understand the history of fascism, we're not going to recognize certain tricks and tactics. Like, for example, in his rallies, the way that he repeats simple three-word phrases over and over again, you know, what I call in the book, shamanistic incantation. Um, we're not going to recognize more recently the big lie, right? Trump told a big lie. He simply did. And now people inhabit that big lie. And with the history of fascism, we're going to be faster on our feet to figure out what's going on and why it's dangerous. So for me, it's like the point is not so much like, is he or isn't he? Like that, that's a kind of parlor game. The point is more if we understand fascism, that's going to give us one more clue to figuring out what's going on now. Very interesting what you just said there, because you're basically saying he's using some of the tactics that are associated with fascism, but may not have a coherent political ideology or uh, you know, ideas that would lead him to the purpose of fascism, as, as it's been understood in Europe. Trump's, Trump's core interest is not about a racial struggle, but Trump is Trump has create, created a politics of struggle, not so much externally as internally in his own country, um, for the purposes of basically a con, you know, for the purposes of preserving his own wealth, for the purposes of not being investigated legally. And he's running, you know, he's going to run for president again for the same purposes. So the techniques are certainly there. And even some of the outcomes might be the same, right? Like America is a much more racialized, tribalized country than it was four years ago, thanks to Mr. Trump. But I, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't believe that there's um, that there's a same kind of coherent worldview there. I think there might be a kind of, you know, teenager version of it or, you know, that like he kind of believes that the strong survive and that's all. But but it, it's not it's not coherent and it doesn't you know, it's not with him from dawn to dusk for sure. Do you think some of the people around him, certainly in the first election campaign, like Steve Bannon, do have a more thought through uh, view of the world that you know may not be uh, particularly supportive of democracy, may be uh, more challenging. You know, I'm, I'm not calling it fascism, but maybe more destructive uh, than than in in a, in a more thorough and thought through way than Trump. Again, to give credit where credit is too, too, Trump has instincts, and those instincts definitely lead towards the destruction of democracy. Right? I mean, he had a gut feeling that he should. If, when, when he lost the election, his gut feeling was, I'm going to just tell a huge lie about it. And now he has his issue for the next election. And there won't be another issue. I mean, both he and his party are going to run a one-issue campaign. And their one-issue campaign is democracy isn't real. That's it. That's where we are. You know, whether or not you decide that that's fascist, it's well across the line of not being democratic. And something that can bring democracy to an end. If you claim the other end, the other side cheated, that votes don't really count, that you deserve power despite what the votes seem to say, you're clearly across a line, and you're no longer supporting the democratic system. But yeah, I mean, I want to affirm the I affirm the premise of your question. There certainly are people, and Steve Bannon is a good example, who are deeply read in fascist literature, who do believe that they're involved in a kind of 21st century, you know, reprise of. Of, of fascism, who use who refer to the authors um, with admiration, who use similar phrasing. You know, in Bannon's case, like he he, admi- he you know he says we're going to we're going to replay the 1930s. Um, you know, he, he, pe- people who disagree with the Trump line should have their heads cut off and put on put on pikes at the at the White House gates. 
you know, that kind of language is, is undeniably fascist. And there are a lot of fascists in America. You know, I mean, again, like the parlor game of like, is Trump or isn't, can obscure certain things. And one of the things that can obscure is there are a lot of people in America, who, although they wouldn't use the word, they're anti, they're, you know, they're against global integration. They believe in race. Um, they believe in arming themselves. They believe in violence. There are a lot of such folks around. And, and this is, of course, relevant. They all like Trump, right? So whether, however we categorize Trump and how, whatever level we think of, there is of instinct and technique and belief here in Trump, you know, that if we only talk about the individual, we're going to miss the basic political reality, which is that all of those people loved Trump, right? Um, you know, from, from, from the American Nazis, and they exist, and they have their own publications, they loved Trump, and they voted for Trump. Steve Bannon didn't last long uh, in the administration. Do you believe there are still people around Trump who are read in, as you put it, or well-read, and who have you know, thought through these kind of ideas, rather than just, as you say, Trump doing it on instinct? Is, are, are there still people close to him who are like that? I mean, the interesting thing about Bannon is that one of his problems is that he was too consistent of a national socialist. I mean, so so when Trump comes to power, there's all this talk about infrastructure, right? In America in early 2017, there was a lot of talk about infrastructure, and that was I mean, and, and the idea, and that wasn't coming from a welfare state place; it was coming from a national socialist place. The idea was that you're going to get the country moving again by using the state. You know, to 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 walk, to get industry moving, that was Bannon. I mean, that was there. That was that. I and that you know, that's that, that's the 1930s too. Like, there's various versions of how you use the state to intervene in the economy. One of them is a Nazi version, but that's the place where some of the ideas that got Trump into power ran up against what remained of Republican reality. So, in Republican world, that's not how you do things. The state is not the engine of economic growth. Um, there aren't going to be big, you know, there aren't going to be, and then Trump himself <laughs> decided that he can't have big investments by the state because they would also benefit Democrats. Trump doesn't really have an economic program at all. It's like a continuation of let's let increases in, we- let's let wealth inequality be, you know, be wealth inequality. Let's let oligarchy be oligarchy. And then let's like, and let's tell white people that they're better than other people and let that be a substitute for actual social mobility. Around Trump now are not a lot of people who I would say are referring to fascism. And even Bannon is kind of on the, in the mainstream now. He's just pushing it a little bit further. What they're talking about is how to rig the election in 2022, 2024. That's their big game now. Their big game now is how you get Trump back to power, even though he's not going to win an election in a normal way. So that that's now kind of the mainstream around Trump, and that's the thing Trump himself talks about. So let, let's let's look ahead then, and because um, in this in this series we're trying to you know project people's expertise into the future. So you have explained you know your analysis of what's happening when you see the next election. First of all, it's obvious Trump stands, right? Well, I mean, so long as he's not in prison or in Russia, he's going to definitely run because. I mean, from Trump's point of view, it's all about Trump. And Trump has two problems. He doesn't really have any money. And running for office is a way to generate money that he can indirectly spend on himself. And uh, and, and, and the big lie, by the way, was a huge fundraising bonanza. They raised a lot of money on that. And the other problem that Trump has is legal. 
and people are going to hesitate to prosecute somebody who's running for office. And if he and if he somehow manages to get in office again, then it's been established, in my view, unfortunately, but it's been established that you're not going to prosecute a sitting president, even when you acknowledge he's committed crimes, as was generally acknowledged, in fact, by leaders of both parties the last time around. So he's going to he's going to stand for election if he's not in prison and if he's you know if he's eligible, if he's in the country. And if yeah. that happens, then it is quite possible, as you say, that he'll he'll lose the election and he will say the result is invalid. I yeah. mean, even when he wins, he says the result is invalid. You're right. In two, I mean, like he's in 2016, he won, and he also said the result was invalid. Yes, he will most likely lose, and he will whatever happens, he's going to say that he got millions more votes than he actually got. Now, the thing that sure. strikes me as as particularly important in this is that the people who held the line in 2020 were by and large Republican mid-ranking state level officials who who said no you lost uh, and we heard some of the phone calls where he tried to say no you must tell me to tell everyone I won and they said no we're not going to do that no those people have received death threats and I presume are very nervous about doing it again or if they're even in office to do it again so how much risk is there that actually next time the system won't deliver the correct result Oh, I think that risk is very high, not least because that's the plan. I mean, of one of the two political parties, that is the plan. It's right out there in the open. Um, because as, as you say, I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of other factors at work in 2020. There were a lot of civil society organizations who were trying to make sure that the vote got counted and who were thinking about where the critical pressure points were. And, and that that and there were a lot of lawyers who were ready to file the suits that had to be filed at that time and ready to defend the the cases that had to be defended. There was 2020 was much different than 2016 in that a lot of Americans had been getting ready for a year for the scenario that actually unfolded because a, a lot of there were a lot of smart people who, even if they didn't anticipate exactly what happened on January 6th, they were anticipating some some kind of a challenge and correctly anticipating some kind of a challenge to the actual to the actual vote count. But the difference this time, as you suggest, is that those attorneys, um, uh, the, the, the people who the, the people who are responsible, they're called secretaries of state usually, who are responsible for for the final vote count in the states. Those positions are all now being targeted, and like the Republican radicals whose view is that Trump won are trying to you know will try to get take those offices even from their fellow Republicans. And then down at the lower level of like, you know, things that are supposed to be entirely non-controversial, non-political, local political stations, just like the people who sign off on the vote, right? That that's also being contested. Because the fact that, you know, that the fact that the that that we have this system where people on both on from both parties are present and you know, people on both parties count, that it's that held up. That held up. I mean, it wasn't just the People who, who Trump called, there were a lot, you know, there were thousands of people of, of both parties who just kind of did their job. And that's why we had an election. The Republicans are going after that now, too. Like they're looking for people who are, who are willing to falsify the vote or who are willing um, in a simpler variant to say something happened and we don't know what happened. You know, therefore, there's fraud. Therefore, we have to let the state legislature decide. And that, I think that's the scenario where you get a few states where the state legislature rather than the voters decides where the electoral votes are going to be allocated. And that's how somebody who loses not just the popular vote, but the electoral vote is is installed as the winner. So, I mean, this is all like it. it's more. The interesting thing is not that this is happening. It's obviously happening. The interesting thing is how much effort 
Americans are willing to expend to not look right at what's like what's happening. Like this is the story. Everything else is kind of marginalia. Right. And 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 it seems very bizarre that the Democratic Party are not doing more about this. I mean, as you say, it's all pretty obviously out there and it's pretty clear what's going to happen at the next election. And yet President Biden and those around him don't seem to be taking this seriously. Why on earth are they not taking it seriously? Yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons why I'm glad that that there's a new version of, of the Little on Tyranny book, because in, in the graphic edition, I account for what happened in 2020 and 2021. And I write about the big lie, which is like the first part of your answer to your question is that like the big lie has to be contained as much as possible. It spread much more quickly. I mean, as I tried to warn people, it spread much more quickly and has taken over huge parts of the of, of the media and it's taken over political party. It has to be contained as much as possible. It has to be named for what it is. And and um, and as many people who are, you know, who are not committed tribal politicians as possible have to be held to the view that look, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, you gotta count the, you gotta count the votes. Um, that's the first thing, contain the big lie. The, the, the second thing is to, you have to pass legislation because I'm going back to an earlier question of yours. We have this really weird, rickety federal system, which doesn't do elections very well. There are laws now that are being considered in, you know, in the House and Senate, which would make our elections much more modern and much better. To, 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 in fairness, the Democrats did make those laws their first priority. Their problem is that they don't actually have a majority for those laws, at least not so far, um, mainly because one or two of their own members in the Senate, for reasons which are t- obscure to the point of like, obvious hypocrisy, won't won't vote for them. And so it's not the Democrat. I mean, I would say the problem is not so much the Democrats is that there aren't enough Democrats to pass the laws that you would need because and I think the Democrats now are kind of stuck because they don't know whether to go all Cassandra on this when they can't seem to quite get the votes. And I think they're still hoping that they're going to somehow, that they're going to somehow get the votes. But I basically agree with you. I mean, I think not just the Democratic Party, but the people who are writing about the United States should be treating democracy as the question. It's not the backdrop, like it's the thing which is now in play. That's a really interesting story if you're a journalist who's writing about for the next three years. And it's, it, is, it is the story. It's not a constant democracy. It's a variable. And, and there are people who are trying to undo it. And, you know, the journalists have to get out of the habit of saying, like, the Republicans say they're doing, you know, the Republicans say they're just worried about fraud, but the Democrats say they may be suppressing the vote. That's not how you do reporting. You know, you figure out which one is it, really, you know, which one which one is it? And then you write a story about that. It's, by the way, there's an answer to that question. The answer is that it's really voter suppression. But you have to, you know, you, you can't do, the, you, we're going to, on the one hand, on the other hand, ourselves to death if we if we don't, if we treat it as just a, a matter of disagreement between the parties, as opposed to saying, hey, look, democracy itself is a really interesting story. Let's write about the democracy. Yes, well, that model of journalism is is a problem. But so too, perhaps, is just the Americans' faith in their institutions. It's just too great. And, uh, and I think that's what you've been trying to say, isn't it? That just because you've got this you know, fairly long tradition uh, of democratic politics doesn't mean it, that it's assured. And it's a very mixed tradition. I mean, this is why, you know, I learn from and I try to keep learning from my Americanist colleagues. Like, it's a very mixed tradition. You know, the women couldn't vote until the early 20th century. 
African Americans have not been able to vote for most of the history of the country. The entire period of slavery, obviously not. And then after a brief period after the end of the second after the end of the Civil War, again, there's a de facto one party state in the South where where African Americans can't vote. And that's we only repair that in the 1960s, and it's not a complete repair. So, you know. When when America, I mean, I really don't like American exceptionalism. It's, it's just it's lazy, right? Like the moment you say you're accept an exception, it's like you're an automatic exception, and that means you don't actually have to do anything. You know, it's like the motto of the state of Missouri is, is, is "Show me," and that's more like it. Like if you're so exceptional, then show it. Like show how great you are. Get the get rid of the gerrymandering. Make 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 um make election day a national holiday. Make voting a right. You know, if you're such a great democracy, then show that you're such a great democracy. It's like it's this historical complacency, which I think is a big problem, and it allows Americans to get themselves tied up in knots where they think. If we're doing it, it must be democratic, even though the thing that even though like that view is just head slappingly wrong, if you're looking at it from from any distance. I, I need to ask you about the, the I think you're beginning, you call them the old fashioned Republican colleagues of yours, people like that who, uh, you know, are members of the Republican Party, but certainly started off by not enjoying what Trump was doing. Why have they not been heard? Why have they not made themselves heard? I mean that's a deep question, which I think is best answered from the from the inside. I mean, Ann, Ann Applebaum has a little book called Twilight of Democracy, which is about how a lot of her um, right wing friends in Europe turned out to be anti democratic, and then she followed that up with an article about what she called collaboration, um, which is, is is just is just about this, and she's answering it from. The inside, and a lot of you know, a lot of her answer has to do with personal complex and resentments, and but some of it has to do with cowardice. And I think, like you know, it used to. So back when there was conservatism, we used to talk about virtues. That conservative cloak on the Republican Party was really just a cloak, like it wasn't the party itself. And you know, the, the people who I admire, who were conservatives in the sense of. You know, who had different policy preferences than me, but who I admire because they cared about the country and they were consistent about certain values. Those people turned out to be very thin on the ground, and a lot of them are no longer in the party. So they got, I mean, basically they got beat. They got their hats handed to them in 2016 by Trump, um, who called their bluff and said, the right-wing party in America doesn't actually need values. We can just do it as resentment and hypocrisy and social Darwinism, and celebrating celebrating wealth, and wanting to be deceived. We can do it that way. And that left these people in the dark. I mean, the people who believed in truth and who believed in values, it left, it, it cut them out. And so they, they lost, I mean, so they tried, but it just turned out there aren't that many of them. Do you believe there will be widespread civil conflict, violent conflict in the US after 22 or after 24? It's going to take a certain amount of initiative and creativity to get us out of our current rut. That's how I would describe it. Like we're in a rut or what the political scientists might call a path dependency now, where what you're describing is the is is what is the course that we've charted. Let's put it that way. By accepting this big lie that Trump won the election. Not, not everybody, of course, but let's say a quarter of the population and one of the two political parties, by accepting this big lie, 
by using the big lie as an excuse for another round of, of voter suppression, um, by trying to make politics all about culture. So there's this, this you know, absolutely nonsensical anti-critical race theory thing going on, which is all about you know, claiming innocence for yourself and claiming that, your, that history is all about making you feel good about yourself, which is ludicrous. Um, by, by doing all of that, the rut that we're in is we're gonna have a politics of culture war next year. And then if the Republicans manage to win on, on their culture war platform and their big life platform, then we are set up for this scenario in 2024 where the person who loses the election by, let's say, 10 million popular votes and, and 50 electoral votes is nevertheless installed because, um, because enough states are willing to reallocate their electoral votes. And, uh, and because the Republicans have a majority in the House and Senate, they go along with that. Then you get violence. And I think this is like, so the Republicans, like the strength of the Republicans is that they're very good at gaming things out. And so what I've just described, I mean, they would never say it so openly, but like that's the game that they're playing and they've gamed it out to what they think is the end. But the thing is like life is not really a game. And even if you win the game, that doesn't mean that things are going to turn out the way you expect. So I, if, the thing is, I think they expect that like if they win the game, everybody if they win the game by rigging it, everybody's going to, you know, just either applaud them or lay down. But I don't think that's true. Like, I think if, if, if I mean, in, the, in this, you know, in this scenario where the candidate who wins by 10 million votes does not become president. And by the way, that's just the trend we're on, right? I mean, Trump lost by 3 million, he was president, and then he lost by 7 million, he claimed to be president. If he, if he runs again, I think he'll probably lose by 10 million. But um, but if, if somebody like that is installed, nobody's going to lay down. That's the thing. Like people are going to be angry and the Republicans, I'm afraid, like they think they have escalation dominance because they're angrier, but they're not, they're not angrier. There are a lot of people who are really angry who are not Republicans who are maybe just a little bit more polite about it. But if it came, you know, if, 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 if you get to the situation of trying to destroy American democracy, the fact that those people are, are, are already angry is going to come out. And so I think, you know, that situation is going to lead to a lot more conflict. And the Republicans think that they're the ones who are armed, which is also not true. I mean, of course they are, but they're not the only ones, right? Like everybody else. So I really worry about that scenario. Like there's a problem with gaming the system. It's just, it would be much better to just go back to the old idea that sometimes you win and sometimes, and sometimes you lose. Professor Snyder, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.